Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, calls for de-escalation. I think it is important that together we work on a political dialogue. As Melanie Jolie works to get some 400 Canadians out of Gaza, the Foreign Affairs Minister also says talks are taking place to get both sides to show greater restraint. Coming up, we'll speak to two MPs who are hoping for something more direct, an all-out ceasefire. Also... It's far more likely, based on our analysis, that it originated in Gaza. Canada now has a, quote, high degree of confidence that Israel is not responsible for the rocket blast that hit a Gaza hospital last week. But why did it take so long to come to that conclusion? And we'll get reaction to Saskatchewan's move to invoke the notwithstanding clause and pass its controversial pronoun policy in schools. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. The Foreign Affairs Minister is continuing her overseas diplomacy this evening, meeting leaders in the Middle East to discuss humanitarian aid, to find ways to get Canadians stuck in Gaza out, and to look at long-term challenges like peace and stability in the region. I think it's important that we send a clear message of de-escalation, but also that we are able to talk about peace and stability. It is important that we talk about how we can engage on a political dialogue while we're dealing and managing the crisis right now. We need to think mid and longer term, and that is why we're talking about the political horizon of the region. Now, Minister Jolie was in part answering a question regarding this open letter signed by 33 MPs for the Prime Minister calling for an immediate ceasefire between Israel and Hamas and the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza. For more, we're now joined by Heather McPherson, the NDP's foreign affairs critic, also the MP for Edmonton Strathcona, and Mike Morris, Green Party MP for the riding of Kitchener Centre in Ontario. Hello to both of you. Hi, Michael. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Oh, very happy to have both of you. Listen, before we begin, we, we do want to note the fact that we did invite the Conservatives to take part in today's discussion, but they declined our offer. But, you know, with that, I, I, I want to really begin here with your reaction to the comments that we heard from the Foreign Affairs Minister today. Uh, Melanie Jolie saying that Canada is calling on both Israel and Hamas to de-escalate actions. Heather, uh, is that encouraging to hear that from Melanie Jolie? You know, listen, Michael, we've we've been calling for a ceasefire since the very beginning. And I, I have to say, you know, right now there are Palestinians who are losing their lives. The 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 security of Israel is not being protected by the by the death of, of civilians. We've heard from from independent civil society organizations that over two thousand Palestinian children have died. So, so no, what we need right now is a ceasefire. We need a ceasefire so that humanitarian aid can get in, so that people can get the, so the food, the medicine, the water that they need. Um, and then there needs to be a political, a political solution to this. There needs to be, you know, everyone needs to come to the table and we need to have a, a political solution because there is no military solution that doesn't result in the more deaths of innocent people. Uh, Mike, what do you say to, to what you heard from the Foreign Affairs Minister today? 
Well, I just strongly agree with Heather. We need to be seeing a call for a ceasefire from the government of Canada. It's uh, at this point we're seeing right now, every 15 minutes, a Palestinian child is dying. And Canada has a, has a role to play here as a middle power to have our, our voices heard. And so to me and, and to many colleagues, as I, you've noted, this uh, letter that's gone out across party lines, um, this is uh, past time to be calling for a cease a ceasefire, and uh, we're going to continue to call for for that. Okay, let me stay with you, Mike, on this one because you you actually signed that letter by MPs, and, and Heather, you did not, which I'll get to in a second. But you know, Mike, when, when you look at the letter that you signed, in some ways, it seems to to be that what we're hearing from the Foreign Affairs Minister is perhaps more cautious language as opposed to direct language. But are you at all encouraged by the action that you're seeing right now? Uh, well, again, our call remains the same. Certainly, it's a step in the right direction to talk about de-escalation. We've heard uh, the federal government talk about all international law to be followed by all parties. Uh, you know, that's also an encouraging sign in the right di uh, direction. Um, but, you know, I, when, when we see MPs from across parties coming together in this way, it's, it's recognizing the devastation right now in Gaza. Uh, recognizing that uh, we're seeing, you know, over 5,000 Palestinians now uh, dead, and and those deaths, as you heard uh, from my colleague uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, are not doing anything when it comes to ensuring that uh, we keep Israel safe. And of course, Israel has the right to defend itself, uh, but certainly, uh, yes, yeah, stand by that call for a ceasefire. We'd like to see the federal government. Uh, step up to to that mm -hmm. uh, and Heather you did not sign the letter for 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 very specific reasons can you talk to us about that yeah of course you know some of my colleagues did sign the letter the letter was that was drafted by the Palestinian friendship group in Parliament uh, I didn't sign the letter because the NDP position has has been much stronger and it's been much stronger for much longer we've called for a ceasefire some time ago at the very beginning of, of the siege of Gaza um, you know, we've been talking about the need for in international law to be protected through the International Criminal Court, the International Court of Justice. We've talked about the need for humanitarian corridors, for humanitarian aid to get to the people that need it urgently right now. So for, for us, I mean, I looked at the letter and, and calling for a ceasefire 10, 12 days in is great and it's important that we get that, but there is so many more things that the Canadian government can be doing. There's so many more things that the Canadian government can be doing to listen to, you know, Jewish Canadians, Muslim Canadians, Palestinian Canadians who are asking for a ceasefire, who are asking for more action from this government, that are wanting the government to use its 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 diplomatic ability to move forward and, and, and work towards a more peaceful outcome for everyone and to, to ultimately stop the death and the destruction that's happening right now. You know, Mike uh, referenced uh, Israel's right to protect itself, Heather, and fight for its survival. And when you look at the October 7 attacks, it also left children dead, babies mm -hmm. dead, uh, people yeah. raped, over 200 uh, hostages taken, according to the latest number. What do you say to Israelis who are still feeling that pain? And while they might hear the humanitarian argument being made. It's not as if Hamas considered the humanity of the people who lost their lives in that attack. No, absolutely. And listen, let me tell you, I, I, my heart goes out to every single one of those Jewish Canadian families that have been impacted. The, 
the signs, the, the, the things that we've seen, the, the, the way that the, the people that were taken, that were murdered, were treated, is just so heartbreaking. And I don't know if there is a community in this country who hasn't been touched by that horror, that, that absolute disregard for humanity that Hamas showed. But, but there's something that I think needs to be made very clear, and I don't think it's been made clear. Palestine, Palestinians are not Hamas. And punishing Palestinians and killing Palestinian children is not going to hurt Hamas. That, they're not the same thing. And I, I can't seem to, you know, I can't say it any clearer than that. Uh, Israel has every right to defend itself, has every right to, to grieve for this horrendous terrorist attack. But, but they need to fight against Hamas. They need to be fighting against Hamas, not against the Palestinian people. Because there are, there are children in Palestine that had nothing to do with this. There are families that, that have nothing to do with this, who have lost their lives, lost their homes, lost their schools. You know, we really do need to make it very clear, Hamas is not the Palestinian people, and the Palestinian people need to be protected, just like every other person around this world deserves to be protected. Uh, Mike, I'm quickly losing time, but, uh, but I would like uh, you to have the opportunity to add to what we just heard from Heather. What do you say to, to, to people who make the argument, it's not as if Hamas cared about the humanity of the people that they killed? Well, I actually think you've heard a very strong uh, argument from uh, Heather. I think this is exactly what myself and others have been saying really clearly that Hamas is not representative of the Palestinian people. They carried out a terrorist attack. We condemn it in the strongest possible terms. And we need to ensure that all parties are following international law. Uh, obviously, Hamas's attack was a clear violation of international law. We condemn it. Any attack on civilians is that. And so we also need to ensure that the state of Israel follows international law. And we need to uh, to call that out and, and calling for a ceasefire is is one way of doing so. And there are other potential uh, potential solutions. For example, in 1956, when we when Lester B. Pearson helped to create the uh, UN peace, peacekeeping force, there are multilateral options for countries to come together to root out Hamas without losing, uh, you know, having children uh, in 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 Gaza dying every every fifth, 15 minutes. Uh, Heather, you know, before we're done, I do need to ask you one more thing, though, because Jagmeet Singh did release a, a letter tonight calling for a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the Prime Minister to talk about a ceasefire. I'm wondering if you know of any acknowledgement of that letter, whether or not that meeting will happen, uh, what your hopes of that meeting might be? I've not heard anything yet about that, about whether that meeting is going forward. I certainly hope that the Prime Minister uh, takes the request of Jagmeet Singh as uh, our leader um, seriously and agrees to sit down and, and have that very important meeting. Canada needs to do more and we, we, we need to do it urgently. Uh, people's lives are on the, on the line and, and Palestinian people can't wait. Heather McMearson, uh, Mike Morris, thank you for the time this evening. Really appreciate both of you taking it. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Canada has now added its assessment on the rocket blast that hit a Gaza hospital last week, backing up late Saturday Israel's assessment that it did not come from them. What we believe is that that rocket um, did not originate from, it's, 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 it's highly unlikely. We would say with a high degree of confidence that it was, it was not fired from Israel. 
it's far more likely based on our analysis that it originated in Gaza. Um, it, it, it still resulted so in a tragic loss of life and, and, and frankly, the loss of innocent life concerns us. Joining us now is Marie-France Lalonde, Liberal MP for the riding of Orléans in the National Capital Region and the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of National Defence. Madame Lalonde, thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Michael. Now, we just heard uh, your minister talk about the conclusions regarding the blast that hit the Gaza hospital. Uh, the conclusion based on the Intelligence Command of Canadian Forces as they did their own analysis of the evidence. I'm wondering what exactly were they looking at? What evidence did they have access to to come to this conclusion? So, well, I want to say thank you to all of you and certainly to our Canadian Armed Force uh, for their extraordinary work that's happening and, you know, all throughout. Um, Let's also say that, you know, uh, a terrible accident happened and that was the loss of life uh, of the explosion. You know, I think all of us Canadians were very sad uh, with the tragic explosion and the results of loss of life, children's women uh, who perish in this blast. From the very beginning, um, the Prime Minister of Canada asked Minister Blair to review, uh, to go into uh, in more depth, as you mentioned, um, and we were uh, with a high degree of confidence based on the analysis and the review uh, that Israel was not responsible. And that review was based on a collaboration with our allies, uh, our partners, but also uh, the evidence that came with, you know, uh, the hospital complex and, and everything surrounded of the evidence that was shown and demonstrated to our Canadian Armed Force, the intelligence branch. And so show, shown to Canadian officials by, by Israeli officials, American officials, where exactly was the evidence coming from? So the evidence came with a, um, a high degree that Israel, as I mentioned, was not responsible. The evidence was a partnership between the information uh, that our intelligence were able to gather uh, with uh, our partners. Okay, so, so I wonder then, why did it take so long for Canadian officials to reach a conclusion that the United States came to within 24 hours of the attack? Well, I would say the Prime Minister was very clear from the very beginning uh, after the, um, the, the explosions that we needed to uh, better understand to get the evidence and that's exactly, and I would say our, actually the intelligence, the Canadian Armed Force worked very quickly and expeditely, but with a degree of confidence that we can say that the explosion uh, was not um, because of Israel and that was very important for us and actually we shared this as soon as it became available, which was on Saturday, the Prime Minister was brief and Minister Blair made the statement. But why, but why the delay? Why did it take so much longer than say the Americans coming to that conclusion or the British or the French? Why did it take Canada so long? Actually, we were very upfront from the very beginning uh, about the explosion that we needed to gather the evidence and collect the information and that's exactly I do want to thank our Canadian Armed Forces the uh, branch of the intelligence that work very hard and um, I would say very quickly to help us understand and we to share with a degree with a high degree of confidence that the blast was not the responsibility uh, the explosion was not uh, the Israeli 
Were there any uh, political considerations that may have delayed the conclusion, uh, given the, for example, the many uh, pro-Palestinian marches that we've seen in Canada? Were there any political considerations that essentially delayed the process? You know what? This is a, a conflict that's, um, you know, when I think about October 7, um, thousands of lives were lost. Uh, when I understand uh, what has happened at the hospital, you know, this is a very sad time. Um, and I think from a Canadian perspective, I was very happy to see this weekend Minister Jolie and Minister Ahmed confirming an additional $50 million in support of the humanitarian corridor to provide assistance to the people in Gaza uh, who need it most. So I'd say, I want to say again, and I really want to say thanks to our Canadian Armed Force who have worked extremely well and fast in delivering um, an analysis to the Prime Minister and Minister Blair, as soon as it, made, it was available, came and, and shared that evaluation with all of you. Now, your government uh, is encouraging Canadians to get out of Lebanon right now, uh, as there are commercial flights, as we've heard. But obviously not everyone will or can answer that call, be it financially or for whatever reason. DND uh, was involved in getting Canadians out back in 2006 when Israel and Hezbollah got into a conflict. Is DND preparing for a similar mission now? Uh, so the situation in Lebanon, we know how volatile, and I think Minister Jolie has been very clear uh, in asking those that are Canadian that wants to, should come back to Canada as commercial flights are available. Minister Blair also, out of an abundance of cautious, does uh, did ask uh, our Canadian Armed Force uh, to position themselves in Beirut and in Cyprus. Uh, we are monitoring the situation, and we will uh, be there for Canadians. Certainly we are encouraging those that are um, in, the, in Lebanon to consider commercial flight to come home. Marie-France Lalonde, thank you for the time this evening. Thank you very much. Time now for the other stories making headlines today. The last scheduled evacuation flight by Canadian Armed Forces left Israel today. It was the 19th assisted departure flight out of Tel Aviv, according to Global Affairs. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie says 1,600 Canadians and those with ties in Canada left Israel in the last 10 days. Another 45 were evacuated from the West Bank and efforts continue to get citizens out of Gaza. Today, Minister Jolie had this message. Also, I would like to say for uh, Canadians that are in Lebanon, it is time now to come home. Of the estimated tens of thousands of Canadians living in Lebanon, approximately 16,000 have registered for government assistance. A Chinese-backed disinformation campaign targeted the Prime Minister, Conservative leader Pierre Poilievre, and dozens of MPs. This, according to Global Affairs Canada. There's an analysis taking place. I just came from CSE and our cybersecurity center, and, the, and they are doing the work now to determine exactly um, what may have been compromised and, and ways, the steps that we will be necessary to take in order to protect um, our information systems. We know that there has been some targeting of, 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 of Canadian government and, and government officials. Um, we're still determining what the full extent of, of that is, and, and we'll have more to say as, as that information and the analysis, which is being done at the Cybersecurity Centre. 
The Spamiflage campaign began in August. Spamiflage uses hacked or new social media accounts to spread propaganda. According to the department, thousands of comments were posted on MPs' social media accounts in September in an attempt to silence criticism of the communist regime. MPs have since been advised on how to protect themselves from foreign interference. The government says it is monitoring the situation. The federal court will decide this week whether to greenlight a $23 billion compensation package for First Nations children and families who experience discrimination through the underfunding of child welfare social programs. If approved, this will be the largest settlement agreement in Canadian history, affecting more than 300,000 people. The case stems from a human rights complaint filed back in 2007. The Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ruled in 2016 that services for First Nations children were underfunded compared to non-Indigenous children. The ruling also said that Indigenous children were removed from their families unnecessarily. The Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe has made good on his promise to use the notwithstanding clause to pass a controversial bill on gender identity in schools. Mr. Speaker, those in favour of the motion, 40. Those opposed, 12. Rick Morris. Yes. On Friday, the provincial government passed and immediately granted royal assent to its parental bill of rights, meaning it's now the law for children under 16 to get parental consent before they can use their preferred name or pronoun at school. Take a listen to what the Premier told reporters after Bill 137 passed in the legislature. This is uh, not about uh, targeting uh, anyone in any way. This is about um, building uh, those supports and providing parents with the right uh, to, to be involved in, in their child's education and life and ultimately to be a part of that support group um, that is being built around that child, which I think, in fairness, everyone wants, whether wherever you sit in the legislature, um, and everyone wants, uh, regardless of what, uh, what expert reports uh, they have put forward. This ensures that the parents do have the right to be involved, and we would hope that they all take that. Joining us now is Helen Kennedy, the executive director of EGAL, uh, this country's leading advocacy group on issues affecting the 2S LGBTQI community. Uh, Helen, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, thank you for having me on, Michael. Now, you are already on record as saying it is unconscionable that, this, that the Saskatchewan government has moved ahead with this policy. Why do you say that? Well, we know from the work that we do that outing uh, young people um, causes irreparable harm. It leads to uh, mental health issues. In many cases, it leads to suicide, uh, ide suicidal ideation. And we know that uh, even the courts have agreed with us that outing young people at this time um, is going to cause irreparable harm. And we just feel that it is absolutely unconscionable for the government of Saskatchewan and any other government across the country for that matter to implement such draconian policies. But you know the difficulty here Helen is that if you ask most parents uh, they do want to be involved in their children's lives and they don't want a structure that allows a school to know something about their child or make decisions about their children without them being involved. Is that not a fair ask from parents? Oh. 
100%. Um, as a parent, I want to be fully engaged in my child's education. However, it's not safe for some young people to come out to their parents. Uh, we know this to be the case. We know that incidents and uh, the rates of uh, homelessness amongst 2SLGBTI youth is very, very high. And it's as a direct result of parents not accepting their children um, for who they are. And we know and we should take the lead from our children and from young people with respect to whether or not it's safe to come out at home. And in many cases, unfortunately, we don't have supportive parents. And we know from the work that we do also that in cases and instances where a family does support their child, that the child actually has a much healthier transition and is, is accepted for who they are. Now, I think part of it, too, is, is rooted in the idea that, you know, a, a child under 16 and under might be making choices that will have negative impacts later on in life and something that they'll live to regret. In fact, there, there certainly are things on the Internet, if people search social media, which, which speak to that. What do you say to that concern? I think it's a myth, and I, I don't think that um, choosing a they-them pronoun is going to cause irreparable harm to a child today or later in their lives. I think that we need to take our lead from the young people. They have a right to self-identify. They have a right to self-determination, and I don't think that any parent has a right to choose the gender or the direction of their child's future in terms of how they identify. And so I, I really feel that people need to educate themselves around gender gender identity and uh, gender non-diverse and non-binary folk and, you know, the 2SLGBTI community more broadly. And anything that they read on the internet with respect to children physically or surgically transitioning at a young age is just not true. Not true because it doesn't happen? Uh, it is very, very rare. It's very rare. And, you know, a lot of trans people never engage in surgery at all throughout their whole lives and so you know this is this is a myth and it's something that i think that people should be aware of and i think that parents who know and fully understand the irreparable harm that is caused to young people with such policies will change their feeling and their thoughts very, very quickly around these issues. Now, there are provisions uh, set out for students in the Saskatchewan policy, uh, and these are students for whom getting consent would result in either physical or mental harm. Does that address any of your concerns? Well, I think, you know, our whole premise on this is that you the child has a right to determine and self-determine when, when it is safe to discuss these issues with their parent. I think that in some cases, you know, when the school and when a social worker is fully educated around these issues, then it can be a positive experience. But we certainly do not want to put a child in an, uh, in harm's way by sending them to a social worker or a school psychologist um, that potentially doesn't have the education or doesn't have the abilities to address the issues that the child is bringing forward. And I guess, you know, conversion therapy is no longer uh, legal in this country. And that would be one of my main fears that we're going to put the child in harm's way by sending them to a social worker who isn't able or can't, or for whatever reason is not going to um, 
to be a positive influence on the child's decisions. Now, now as you know, debates uh, over parental rights, as it's being termed, are, are happening more frequently right across the country. Uh, there was, of course, the One Million March for Children, uh, that protest happening in Ottawa, as well as several cities in the country. That was in September. What do you say about these debates? Because they seem to be gaining traction. They are, and I think we're seeing a lot of the uh, influences from what's happening in the U.S. actually coming across the border. We're seeing pride flags being burned. We're seeing sidewalks being dis defaced. Uh, we're seeing an increase in violence against 2SLGBTI people more broadly across the country. And I, I think it's a slippery slope, and it's uh, we're heading in the wrong direction. We should be encouraging these conversations in an age-appropriate way in our education system so everybody has access to a safe and inclusive education and that's the bottom line I think parents need to be educated around these issues in a positive way um, and I think that's where we're lacking right now we're not having these conversations in a way that is safe and inclusive uh, and there's a lot of misinformation circulating on the internet um, and I, I don't think it's healthy certainly not for members of our communities in Canada at the moment Hello, Candy. I always appreciate the time. Thank you for that. Thanks very much, Michael. Appreciate being on. And that is our program for this Monday evening. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. I'm Michael Serapio. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow night. But up next, Estevija avec l'essentiel.